the director who takes the author's vision and makes it come alive on stage. Hello, I'm Jan Simpson for the American Theater Wing, and joining me today to share their experiences are Joe Bonney, Sheldon Epps, Michael Haberstam, and Gregory Mosier. Welcome. Hi. Thank you. Hi. I thought I'd, I'd start off by asking you, um, how, how it was that you came to directing? Is it like a calling for a priest or a minister? <laughs> how did you start? Well, I stumbled into it quite by accident. I started out as an actor, and uh, um, I worked up at the Stratford Festival for a couple of seasons in Canada, and when I came back from Stratford, um, I did what everybody does when they, they move to Chicago, and that's they start their own theater company, um, and somebody needed to direct the plays. I, I think I'd probably always wanted to direct, but I didn't really know it until I found out that I was in charge of a theater company and, and that I couldn't afford anybody else to direct it. <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's, it's sometimes it comes from, from, I think, the frustration of an actor. Um, uh, you know how the actors always gather after the show and, and, and get a little drunk in the bar and try and fix the play? Uh, and maybe that was the calling that sort of pulled me into the idea, well, what if I actually did try to fix the play from the standpoint of a director, if that makes sense? Yeah. The reason I got into directing in theater is that um, I actually came to New York in 79 and I started making short films. I hired a young writer, actor, um, Eric Bogosian, mm. who uh, was also at that time starting to make his own shows and uh, we just started working together. And so it's this very organic thing of working on something that doesn't have a label. You don't actually call yourself anything. You just know you're making the work and you're putting it up in clubs and you're putting it up in these different venues. And then it takes someone else to come along. In this case, it was Joe Papp who was watching us work for a show we were doing there to sort of, to give you the label and say, well, what you're doing is directing, which was a revelation to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> and it sort of snowballed from there. You know, people give you more and more opportunities and you build your credibility, but it wasn't that I actually set out in life to become a director. Actually, my path was remarkably similar to Michael's. I was an actor, and uh, at, a, at a not terribly good time to be a, a classically trained black actor before mm -hmm. this thing called non-traditional casting came along. So I started a theater company on uh, 18th Street in the Village with a bunch of other people, primarily because I, I could say, this is a play I want to be in as an actor and could do it. And it was actually Norman Rene, who I think you know, a wonderful, wonderful director who died very early, who came to me and said one of the most generous things anybody's ever said. He said, you know, when I am directing you and we have an argument, I usually think that you are right, mm -hmm. though I never would admit it at the time. But I usually come back to your point of view. And he said, so I think that means that you, you think like a director, so why don't you just start directing? And I did in that company, and I guess my control tendencies kicked in, and <laughs> I enjoyed it and just stuck with it. And never really made a decision to stop acting and start directing, but found myself having not acted for about a year and not really missing it, loving what I was doing. So, Do you miss it now? I don't, and I think that's one of the best things about me as a, a director. I don't, I don't want to be acting the play. I have such love for actors and such great respect for the craft of acting, but I don't want to be doing it. Mm. So I, I, I think that's a good thing. There are a lot of directors who, who just want to get actors to do the performance that they would be doing oh if yes. they were playing Henry Higgins. And I just say, well, why don't you be brave enough to go and be an actor then? 
think in some ways you start that way if you're an actor first and you move into directing and then you very quickly learn that that is absolutely the wrong way and that you block your actors if you, if you try and enforce your own right. performance choices on them. I had wanted to be a conductor and realized at the age of 19 that uh, that is really not going to happen. <laughs> and as an experiment, just thought I would um, try to direct a play. And I walked into the Oberlin Bookshop, and the plays were on a, a wire rack. And I started with A, and I knew who Edward Albee was because of the movie of um, uh, Virginia Woolf. And I thought, oh, I know that guy. And so I chose An American Dream. So it was an A play by an A Aldi. playwright. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought I'd eventually move on to Brecht. And, like, uh, <laughs> and, and the zoo story. And, and that's right. And, um, <laughs> but I just said I would do it for five years and see if I liked it. And I did. If you're not going by the alphabetical method, how do you choose the plays that you're going to do? What, what is it that says to you, this is the one I want to do? Mm. Uh, for me, it's often the people I'm working with, whether that's uh, the writer, the playwright, uh, or an actor who I've always admired, or a group of actors that I've always admired. I've, I've also found, having done a lot of work in, in uh, resident theater companies, where you, you get some choice about what the next season is, I always wanted to do the thing that would teach me something that I didn't know. Mm. So at, at the Old Globe or at my own theater, I, I try to do plays that are unlike any other play that I've done before. So, you know, I'd never done an Ibsen play, so I did Hedda Gabler. I'd never done a, a Coward play, so I did Private Lives. Uh, I always want to do something that, that's going to make me learn something, make me read those books that we're all supposed to read or have read years ago that I've never read. I say, if I do this play, I'll have to read this book. I'll have to learn how to deal with this material. So it's, it's often about my, my state of ignorance that a, a play will attract me, actually. It's interesting, as an artistic director, you get the luxury of choosing, but most yeah. freelance directors and come often the play, I think that they, they, they the plays that they direct are the job opportunities that, that come by them, so they don't always have the luxury of passion projects. But it seems to me either way, hopefully a play should always be born from a, uh, from a place of passion, a desire, a need to say something, and whether that be, be through a learning process or a deep passionate belief that you're, you're or some psychological state that you're exploring. Immortality is always good for a start, isn't mm -hmm. it? <laughs> I think it's also just the, what is your curiosity for storytelling? What are the stories you want to tell? Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, because I tend to work on new plays, I rarely do the classics, and I don't know why, perhaps because I think there are people who do a, a much finer job than I would do, but I so love the process of being in the room with the playwright, uh, really from the first draft or the first sketch all the way through to the final production at his feet. There's something for me about not knowing what that play is going to be and the gamble of that that I find really exciting. I, for me, it has to be that little moment not little moment, many moments of, I have no clue what this is going to be, and <laughs> how exciting is that, and let's see where it takes us. So there's something about that process of working on new plays that really, you know, works for me in terms of the storytelling aspects. Also, I'm really interested in what are the contemporary voices mm -hmm. that you can get on stage. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so hard because to write a play is just, I think, one of the most difficult things in the world. So I have huge respect for these people who are brave enough to step forward and say, I have a story. 
you know, that I want to put on stage. So if I can facilitate that, then I'm happy to be there. Peter Brook, who I'm, all directors revere, um, his way of saying what you all just said is you have a hunch. You don't have an answer, you have a hunch, and the rehearsal process and the preparation process is about exploring that hunch. If you knew the answers, why would you do the play? Right. That's right. what you're saying. I know exactly what my production of X would be like. Well, save yourself nine months and go <laughs> do something that terrifies you. Right. Do you yeah. ever find and yourself doing a play that you didn't want to direct and then having to navigate that either as an artistic director or because you took a job that you... Uh, I've been lucky. I've never directed a play that I didn't want to yeah. you know, do. I was the head of a company for a long time. I, I have been in that situation, though, when I, when I was a freelance director of needing to take a job. Mm. And somebody would come along and say, do you want to do such and such a play? And I'd go, well, not really, but I need to work. And, and that actually can be a good way to fall in love with a play. Because inevitably, I think, if you're, if you're going to have any passion about it, once you get into the room with the actors, you've got to be in love with it before you get there. So uh, fortunately, in that case, it, it, it was a very, very good play that I just didn't respond to initially. But sometimes like a bad first date, you know, if you, if you make yourself go out with that person again, you can find the things that are fascinating and wonderful about them. And, and, and I did that with that play. At this point, I would never do that again. Mm. I, would never, I would never choose to direct or select something for myself to direct in my own theater that I, I wasn't passionate about. And I, when I make up the season now, there are seasons in which I don't direct because those are plays that I want my audience to see, but not necessarily plays that I have a particular passion for, that I know someone else will have a greater passion than mine, and I go out to find a director who's going who's to find that spark in the play. I used to find myself giving up the, the big shows to other directors because I so wanted to spread the wealth over the course of uh, creating a, a cohesive theater company and that I'd choose the pieces that I thought I should do uh, for about two or three years. And then I found that I began to resent my job so much <laughs> that I was not useful in the rehearsal room to anybody that I, I absolutely had to uh, start with what it was that I wanted to direct. Or as you say, then you take a, a step back and, and just administrate for a season. Mm -hmm. It's not the worst thing in the world. You learn so much through the eyes of enabling other directors. Well, well you have all been artistic directors. Do you ever find yourself, I always wonder this with artistic directors, uh, given that I haven't been one and I tend to be the, the director who happily jobs into different theaters. But if you sat there watching an outside director come in and direct something and it's just terribly disappointing to you or it just doesn't seem to be landing and you like what is your urge at that point you have to just you know take take the high ground and step back or do you feel in terms of the it, because it's your theater and also you have that responsibility that you have to step up and yeah step in I mean how do you negotiate that because I have been around a lot of different artistic directors yeah, who have done different in, things step in and step on yeah <laughs> <laughs> right. step off <laughs> <laughs> It's always about trying to find in what is it that they were trying to do and is there enough there to be able to then help them build their, build their vision and keep it positive, uh, reinforced, so that the actors, I think, never lose confidence in the process. So if the actors lose confidence in the process, then it's pretty much over. Yeah, it's a loss. Um, you never want to get allow them to get to a point where they feel like they've I lost confidence in the director or that they're getting two voices in the room. Right. I also think you have to be, you really have to be, and it, and it is hard, because you know, you're sitting there and you're watching the thing and you say, okay, it's moving into the theater in a week, and 
may not be working. But you have to be sensitive to the process that you as a director have gone through mm. and patient with it. I mean, I've, I've been directing and had bad run-throughs. Absolutely. You know, or, you know, the play is just not there. I had yet. a good one once. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the point. When you have a good one, it's an amazing thing. What was you that have like? to exercise <laughs> the patience that you would want when you, were, when you are directing. Was and then there is a point where you have to declare, all right, I've been patient enough. I may have to do a little bit more than I really would like to do. Mm -hmm. Well, well this would go sorry, go well, ahead. Well, I just said there are some artistic directors, as you are, who are also directors, and there are some artistic directors who aren't directors. And I yeah. find it interesting when you wear the two hats that there would be choices that you'd make that, you know, clearly aren't going to be the choices of this other director. Then I mm -hmm. find that interesting in terms of how to put the director in you slightly aside in order to be the, you know, well, as yeah, long as the choice is working, I mean, it's, that's wonderful not. because then you really get to sit back and, and look at the play and go, wow, how did, how did she get there or how did he get to that place? That's really interesting. It's, uh, I think it's, that, that, that's key is, is sort of s sublimating your own. You don't, I don't think maybe as an artistic director you wear a different hat when you come into a run-through. You don't necessarily look at somebody else's show as a director. You look at it more as a, um, a, an artistic support, an outside eye, somebody yeah. to come in and help. The, the artist open doors. Yeah. It helps to be a director, though, you know, yes. because you're doing a scene and it's boring, right? That happens all the time. It's mm -hmm. just boring. And the impulse is do it faster, do it faster. So the amateur says, you know, or the person who hasn't been in the room says, pick up the pace, pick up the pace. But you know as a director that it might be boring because the audience is confused. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And we all know this. And that you just need to slow it down a little bit yeah. and make clear what everyone well, is doing in become the scene, a little more specific. what the event is yeah. the scene, make it a little more specific. And having a director's perspective is enormously useful in that Yeah, situation. that's what I would say. I think you're right, though, that as an artistic director, your, your function is a little bit different. And I, and I always think of my function as the artistic director going into someone else's run-through is just to be one of the first members of their audience. Mm -hmm and to say, Absolutely. I'm seeing this, I'm not seeing that, that confuses me, oh, that's good, I'd like a little bit more of that, that was a little slow, you know, I got lost here, what were you after here, just to ask the kind of questions that the person who will eventually be sitting in the fifth row will be asking. And I think what you said is key, because sometimes it's the moment that isn't working, uh, and this Ira Weitzman and Andre Bishop at Lincoln Center Theatre have been saying this all the way through our process, that if a moment isn't working, it might not be the moment that needs fixing. It might be something earlier in the play that needs fixing in order right. to set it up. Hmm. Do you not think about those things in general? I mean, how much thought do you give to the audience when you're um, in the process of, of creating the work? The audience as ticket buyer or the audience as receiver of that thing which you've been killing yourself and the actors have been killing themselves? Because <laughs> they're different things. Yeah. They're vastly different things. Explain we, how. Explain well, if you're just thinking the audience member is a consumer, oh, that'll sell 20 more tickets a night. That's suicidal, obviously. I don't know. I think about the audience all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think I am the audience when I'm yeah, sitting there sure. all day long. I mean, you well, don't I mean, want to You've got to be, you've got to eventually go through that process because you want 500, 600, 1,000 people to come into a room with you and, and have a wonderful experience. So, you know, I, I often think that there's a big parallel between theaters and restaurants. You know, that what you're doing is you're getting a bunch of people together to prepare a meal, which is eventually going to be served to a bunch of strangers, for the most part, that you don't know. 
and you hope they'll like it and enjoy being in your restaurant and come back to it. So it would be stupid not to taste the food before it left the kitchen with an eye towards whether they think it's mm. going to taste good or not. You also don't want to cook it all up front. Ex exactly. Otherwise, it's overcooked. And, and by that, I mean you wouldn't want to come in on the first day of rehearsal and start talking about diction. You know, it's like, uh, or, or you're not going to land that laugh on this while we're still actually trying to discover what's this moment about, what's happening that's human here in this moment. Yeah, it's, it's also when you talk about do you think about the audience? I think that's directing 101 because what we're doing is storytelling. If you don't have an audience, then I don't understand what you're doing it for. So it's not that you're thinking in terms of ticket sales or what the end product is going to be in terms of an external world of you know ticket sales, reviews, you know, a longer life or something. You actually are literally thinking in terms of Am I telling the story? Am I telling it the best way I can? Will people like this story? And I mean like in terms of, in the most simplistic terms, which is laugh, cry, weep, you know, walk out, you know, maybe. <laughs> and sometimes it's wonderful, you know, you push something to the edge and it's not for some people. And certain people should not be in that audience. I mean, it's however you want to place your story, but that's all we're doing. I mean, it's really sort of kind of old-fashioned, classic, around the fire, telling stories, we just happen to put it in the bodies of other people and we work with, you know, words, you know, wordsmiths, playwrights who create with it. But it's, I mean, we're all kind of in the room making a sandcastle together and then you, you know, shove it out there for people to look at. I, I don't think it's, I just think it's so primal. You, you've referenced, you've talked about the playwright um, a, a couple of times um, and, and said you like working on, on new plays. Do, do the others of you have a preference for working on new plays or um, working on classics, working with uh, writers who are still alive, still with us, or those who are far away? I mean, do you have a preference? I try to kill the writers during the process. <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't have a preference. I, I, as, as I said, I've always wanted to do the thing that I haven't done. So, uh, my my career's sort of been all over the map, from you know Duke Ellington to Tom Stopper to Shakespeare to August Wilson to a bunch of new plays. Um, I, if I if I had a formula, one, once I've done a new play, because new plays are tough and they take a long time and it's a long process then I like to go and do something that I know is well-crafted from the beginning, <laughs> where you can walk in and you say, okay, this is, a, this is a Noel Coward play. I know this play works. Mm. Uh, so I, I really love to bounce back and forth. New plays, new plays. Why? I love directing because, as Joe says, the process, do it, doing something that no one knows what the result is. Can you imagine him, the, the, what it must have been like to rehearse The Glass Menagerie? And no one had ever seen it, mm -hmm. and be there with Tom and Amanda. <laughs> well, if you're lucky, you get to have some version of that experience in your life, and you believe in it, and you know perfectly well that the audience might reject it, either short term or long term. A lot of great plays were rejected initially. American Buffalo got all bad reviews in 1974, mm -hmm. except for Dick Christensen. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting, I, I think, and you know, you, you say new plays, new plays, and you've just done a couple of revivals, but the fact is that when you walk into the room, every play is a new play. Mm -hmm. 
because because you don't walk into death of a salesman and sort of follow a formula for doing death of a salesman and it it cannot be the same as any other production because you are collaborators on that particular version of this new production oh, right. death of a salesman is a new group of actors so they're all new plays in but a way if people do come in with a certain with certain expectations or baggage or history i mean it's just and I don't mean that in a negative or positive way. I think it's just the given when you're doing, you know, any classic play, and then it's how you make it new and fresh. Well, right, that's the but fun. Yes. I mean, is to is to shake up assumptions. Yeah. So David Cromer just did a gorgeous streetcar named Desire at Writers Theatre, and I I think it had uh, it had very little parallel to the famous Marlon Brando Vivian Lee film. Um, he just had his own take on what he thought this play was going to be about and how he wanted to tell the story. And within minutes, the audience was very comfortably in his world. I think you, you do know that Private Lives works when you come into the room, but if you've got a passion for it, it's because you want to tell an, uh, an old play with a new right. uh, sensibility, with a fresh look so that it speaks to now. Uh, there's no such thing, I think, as a definitive production. There's only a definitive production for a short period of now and then we move on to what the next definitive production is. A good play, hopefully, is, is refreshed every, every, every time uh, it's, it's revived. When you're starting a process, be it a, a revival or a new play, uh, do you start with a concept in mind, or is your first thought about the casting, or your first thought about the design? Where does your process start? In a new work, then you, you sort of, I find that you, you look at what the playwright wants to do and you start there. If you're, on a if you're looking at Hamlet, you might think about, okay, what do I think Hamlet's about? What's the story I want to tell? Um, it, uh, or, uh, and certainly with Hamlet, if you're going to do Hamlet, you, you, you should bloody well know who your Hamlet is before you go into <laughs> rehearsal. So that's a conversation. So it depends on the project, don't you find? I think that's true. I, I do think that either Either, either out of some security or t total foolishness and, and recklessness, I now sort of leave myself a lot more open to find the play in the process than I used to. You know, years ago, I remember reading Larry Carra's Fundamentals of Directing book, which was sort of the manual for how you direct a play. And he wanted you to write down everything, the blocking, the Gosh. colors, the everything before you went into rehearsal and you know so I don't know that I ever did all of that but I had that in mind for a long time that you had to make all of these decisions and you still do have to make a certain number of decisions about design elements and all of that but about what what that living breathing thing is going to be I, I now find myself sort of waiting to find out what it is with the people in the room mm -hmm particularly the actors, you know, and have them, have them inform me about what the play is and what this production of this play should be, rather than to cut the suit before I get in there with everybody and say, okay, now you wear this, whether this color looks good on you or not. So like you want to find a design that, that the actors can almost inhabit yes. and then fill out rather exactly. than something that pushes something oppressively right. onto them. I, but I think it is a little bit of a combination because yes. the, uh, you have a team that's looking to you for some sort of vision. You've, you've got your design team before you ever step into the rehearsal room with your actors. 
even in auditions, you have to have some sense of, out of the many actors that, that are going to walk into that room, someone is going to fall with it. And often they can surprise you, of course, and someone can take you down a path you never anticipated. Mm. They're the most exciting act of that role. But still, the, the, the general you know, sense that you bring into the room before you ever step into the rehearsal room. And sometimes there's just a total concept, I think. I actually agree that once you get in the rehearsal room, everything should be up for grabs. You mm. don't know what the blocking is. but you're already halfway down the road in terms of a set. So uh, for a start, that set is going to dictate you know, certain choices you make in terms of blocking uh, before you even start, regardless of what the kind of organic body language is of each of your actors who will define the characters. So it's, I think there is that. It's interesting because I've just been in the middle of the process at the moment getting up a play of Lynn Nottages, who you know, I just think is the most wonderful writer. But this play is tricky because um, she's been very ambitious with it and it takes place in a lot of time and place and shifts backwards and forwards and the first act is very different to the second act and, and what was really asked of this before even stepping into the room was that the, the director bring a concept to it. After that you get to a point where okay now we have to trust the text, we have to trust the actors, we, but really before we started on that we had to th I had to think what is my concept for this piece? How am I going to make the first and the second acts live as a whole play, even though mm. Lynn had written it, that it would be, and you had to trust that it would be, but it wasn't just a given on the page because it's not linear and it's not. The play gave you like a puzzle that you felt you puzzle. had to solve to some degree. So you had to make very strong visual choices and a language for it, which I think is the most exciting thing that it asks of you to bring that in, and then you put in the best collaborators you can in the room, and. And you've done it beautifully, let me say. Well, thank I've you. We'll, we'll see. But, <laughs> I, but no, I just no, mean it is, there is that, that, you know, um, what do you bring to it? And then you have to open it up to all your other collaborators and trust that each one of them is going to bring, you know, the skill that you don't have. You have some givens, as you say, what you deal with in the script. You have to deal with ghosts right. in Hamlet. His father has to come back from the dead, so you have to create a world in which there can be a ghost. And whatever that choice is, whether you put it in his head or uh, you actually bring a living ghost out on stage. So there are a series of mm -hmm. de decisions. And A Minister's Wife at the end, uh, the musical that we're doing right now at Lincoln Center Theater, we, um, the end of the play um, breaks open from Shaw's Candida, which was its original source, and becomes uh, a very abstract uh, space. So we had to create an environment that could be both real and abstract at the same time. So I suppose that's there's a conceptual start there, right? But then. You, you have to allow the concept to, to, to glue, to cement the play together, but be open enough so that the actors can come in and fill it out in rehearsal. I think I've been confined sometimes by overly specific choices right. that I've made. You know what I mean? Suddenly yeah. you realize, oh my gosh, I've got this decision, and all of a sudden the actor's coming up with this wonderful idea, and how am I, I have to now crack through this in order to be able to, to let this idea live. Yeah, and be able to uh, serve the play. To, well, and also to go away and actually say wherever you're at in the process is not working. Mm -hmm. and, and to literally be able to throw stuff out. And, you know, I mean, I think we've all dealt with something where it's just the concept isn't working or the set isn't working. And we literally, I mean, literally at three in the morning you're up going, okay, if I get rid of that wall and I get rid of that, and maybe the whole space is just blank and maybe I do this or no, maybe I need to enclose it, but I'd always seen it. It's saying the dialogue is ongoing because the discovery is so huge as you're going through the play that you don't, you know, 
actually know where the road's leading you until you sort of bump into the tree and go, okay, that's <laughs> a problem. So. You read those great stories about the European, usually, theater companies where they have lots of money and endless rehearsal time and great stories about people working on a play for two or three weeks with a group of actors just to discover the play and then they go and design the set. <laughs> you know, they just, it's, 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 we sometimes get that, uh, something similar to that if we do a workshop of a new yeah. play. But, you know, one of the, one of the difficulties of uh, resident American theaters, you're on such a fast track. The process is just so quick and you do have to make so many decisions before you even get into the rehearsal room. I often wish that I could rehearse everything for three weeks and then meet the designers mm. and then do the design work. We were in, uh, I was in Stratford working on a production of Time and of Athens as an actor with Michael Langham directing and Anne Hold Ward did the costumes. And I, I don't know if this had ever been done at Stratford before. And Stratford is an enormous machine. Um, uh, they're, they're often um, designed and half built by the time the actors show up. And Michael insisted on having Anne in the room and she would sketch the actors and look at what we were encouraged to bring costume pieces in with us to rehearsal. And a lot of those pieces actually ended up making their way into the show. But they had to hire, I believe, a New York shop to build the costumes because the Stratford Festival couldn't handle the, um, the timing of mm -hmm. circumstances. They, I mean, they, the, they, the process. Exactly. they couldn't track it. They couldn't track it. They, huh. was, they were too backed up at that point in time. They had other shows that they needed to build. It was a stupendous production, though. That actually was, did you see that maybe? That was produced here uh, with um, Tony Randall's theater company. Oh, I saw it down that, yes. here. It was very good. It was good, eh? Yeah, see how a little of my Canadian came out just <laughs> 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 Let's talk a little bit about working with actors. Um, what do you look for when you're in the audition process? What, what, what lets you know this is, this is the person who's, who's right. Well, a lot of times you cast without auditioning. That's mm. the first thing to be okay. said. Mm. Because you've seen the person's work and mm -hmm. you've always wanted to work with him or her. And sometimes, as I think Sheldon said, you, that's why you do the play, mm -hmm. is right. because it's an opportunity right. to work with that actor. Um, so it's a two-part question, really. Why do you want to work with that person? And mm -hmm. And then, but if it's specifically about auditions, I'm remembering that a lot of young actors watch mm. this show. It's it's really out of your control. I used to be enraged when I was a young actor, when directors would say, "Oh, I know in the first 30 seconds." I would say, "How can you know that? <laughs> <laughs> I won't have given you my <laughs> <laughs> first <Like, laughs> 30 seconds. I have surprises. It will come later in the monologue." <laughs> but you just no matter how much you try not to have ideas and be open to any idea of the play, you do have ideas. Mm -hmm. And you go, you're great, man, but you, in a million years, not playing Trofimov. <laughs> and I say to young actors, look, most of you guys are not going to play Stanley Kowalski, because no matter how crummerized the production may become, <laughs> there is, a, you know, there's a certain kill-you sexuality about yeah. Stanley Kowalski. And you don't have to look like Marlon Brando but if she doesn't walk in and go, uh-oh, I just came to the <laughs> wrong city, then you don't, then it's not streetcar. And Kramer's is gonna be different than Kazen's. And, uh, and I haven't, I, you know, I'm so sorry I missed it. I, I just think Kramer's great. And, and 
but there's something, and, and then I go, right, yeah, I guess I'm never playing Stanley. And then once you make that adjustment, then you say, well, then maybe I'm not going to play this guy's Trofimov in whichever one of those Chekhov plays Trofimov <laughs> is in, the Cherry Archer. <laughs> Um, Do you ever get surprised in an audition, though, like when somebody all comes the time. in and just like you, you knew what you wanted and then this person comes in? All the time. Totally. It's not that you're totally. looking for a five-foot, dark-haired guy. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's not it. But you have an idea of what somebody has to... I mean, in championship season, one of the guys has just he's been in and out of hospitals for the last five years because he's been drinking. Mm. Well. There's some guys who are just not going to be credible. But you could be thin, or you could be fat, or you could be tall, or you could be short. But there's, there's just, I believe that guy's been in and out of hospitals. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's you an know, essence. Dragged screaming into hospitals, mm -hmm. as his brothers said. That's, that's a very good word, I think. That's, that's what I'm sort of after in auditions. If it's, if it's not an actor that I'm casting that I know is, is the essence of the character. I'd, mm -hmm. I really don't want somebody to come in and give the performance because right. then it's just sort of fake and phony and false. But, but the essence of, of the character and uh, that you can glean that that essence is going to flower over the weeks of rehearsal. I, I also have to say that I, in callbacks where you, you've sort of gotten down to a, a group of actors and you know, there are three or four people there, and any of those three or four might be able to do it. I just like to find out whether I want to be in the room with the actor <laughs> for the Absolutely. next four or right. five weeks. I, I spend a lot of time not reading the play in callbacks. Just come over here and sit down and let's talk for a while. I just want to know, are we going to be able to speak? Short. Yeah. That person is going to take over your conscious life <laughs> and your subconscious life oh, gosh, yes. for the next six. You literally will be dreaming about this person, and you want to be careful who you let into your dream life. It's, it's also over time, as you accumulate a body of work and also as you see theater, you get to know actors. And there, there also is the situation where some actors audition fabulously and then actually don't develop mm -hmm. over the course of a production. And you know other actors just suck in audition. And they're going to, app, you know, and their process is slow, but you know they're going to be fabulous at the end. And you have to, it's really helpful to accumulate that information about the possibilities of your cast. Because I think, and I think that's where it actually helps sometimes, you know, you'll get a call from a fellow director. Because most directors actually don't tend, in my experience, most directors don't talk, hang around talking about, you know, their process too much. And they don't, you know, <laughs> check in with each other too much when they're on a show. I mean, everyone seems to be, I speak for myself, you know, they're on a bubble. You know Mike Nichols' great line about this? Right. That directing is like sex. You know other people are doing it, right. but you so seldom get to watch. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that's perfect. So that's true. And so that's the thing. So the one thing that I think people share sometimes is you'll get a call from someone and go, so, so-and-so. I'm thinking of them for, you know, and I know you worked with them. Tell me a little, you know, things like that. Just little, you know. People will kind of just check in with each other a little, but that's pretty much the only shared, you know? Yes, experience. Always, because there's such an enormous leap of faith. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's still all a crapshoot. No, no matter how much you think you're prepared, you don't really know what's going to happen until you get everybody in the room. You could just sort of keep your fingers crossed and hope that the chemistry comes together and that everybody lives in the play. But that's, I always do that. If I've got an unknown actor, I'll send a, a quick text out. Right. <laughs> Somebody who knows Tell I'm working me. on the show. Yeah. What we haven't said is this is all in service of the script, of course. Mm. 
you know, we talk about what we were going to dream about them and we <laughs> like everything. But there was a writer, unless right. you're creating a script out of rehearsal. So is this person going to serve this play? That's the question, yeah. right? That's yes, right. absolutely. Yeah. And the later in the process you rehearse, if you're the first person to be cast, it's kind of carte blanche. But if you're the fifth person, you now have to fit into that group of those other four actors. That's right. And, and also when you talk about the playwright, I mean, if, if you're talking about a dead playwright then, you know, anyone's guess what they might have imagined in their head. But if you really are talking about a living playwright, I feel that when you're putting up the first production, there's a, you know, you have to really tap in to the, I mean, they're right here as your partner, they're your collaborator, and how they heard it in their head and what they imagined becomes a huge part of your process in terms of casting. Because you're not going to go down this road if for them really, you know, this is how they see it. So you have to, it's very much, I don't think you ever end up on separate pages because then you just simply shouldn't be doing the play together, but at its best, you know, you're having a real dialogue about what is the ideal cast for you. You know, sometimes when you're working on a play, you'll say to the playwright, okay, if you had a wish list, you know, and you could be talking about Laurence Olivier, you know, you can be talking about someone who's dead, but if you had a wish list, who would be playing these roles? That's that a great question always for writers. Who's yeah, the dream you person? Some, the yeah. Dream Particularly if you use dead people as an example. Cause right. Um, yeah, because then it's a quality, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You talk a little bit about young actors. Um, there's been some uh, discussion about the training of young actors and how it sort of compares and stands up to generations before. What are you finding with younger actors? I, it's, I risk sounding like I'm about to take my teeth out and put them in a glass, <laughs> but the thing that I have noticed with a lot of the young actors I've worked with, although I, I have a vague optimism, uh, a seed of optimism that this might be, this tide might be turning and maybe because of the recession. Um, but the, I found that was an in, a significant amount of entitlement coming into the process. I've had a lot of young actors who thought that they should be playing the starring role and were not willing to work hard in a minor role and learn from great actors, which is how, I, that's how I work my way through uh, the Chicago scene. I learned at the Feetum and, and, and up at Stratford, enormously talented people, and I thought I was very lucky to be on stage with three or four lines, um, and was quite willing to be moving furniture and making three or four costume changes over the course of the evening. You, there was a period where I felt like I was working with a lot of actors who when you would say, okay, you're gonna have to help us with the scene change, and I need you to be an extra in this scene of, all right, <laughs> as opposed to, uh, uh, the tide seems, I, I, I just had a wonderful experience on Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead where I had a young cast who, I've never had a more hardworking group of actors who were more excited to be in the room. That felt like a shift to me. I don't know if you've had this experience at all. It's understandable, you've got kids coming out of drama schools with $100,000 in debt. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. You want me, I, I understand it's a paycheck, but it's $450 a week and I have to live and you want me to play two lines? I get it. I mean, I know what you're talking about, but these, these young people, particularly coming out of the professional schools, are under enormous financial pressure. Mm -hmm. yes. It's terrifying. And, and, y and yet they don't understand that the best way to move, not only to become the best actor, but to really move through the ranks, is to go do that 
four line part and hang out with everybody and because that's part now you have ten people saying hey, you should get Jimmy he's good but you're also seeing kids coming because of the way uh, a lot of programs now do these showcases and all three coasts you're seeing kids coming straight out of school and suddenly finding themselves in starring roles in TV series and then coming back to Broadway and uh, regional theaters and playing roles that they're being cast in because they think they're going to be ticket drawers, but not necessarily because they're actually capable of playing the role. And I think that's an, in, I mean, that, that starts to open up a whole cat, uh, you know, can of worms in terms of the, the industry as a whole, our, our uh, reliance on stars, which, I, you know, I, again, I'm not, I'm not pulling down. I'm just saying that's a lot of the, the entitlement factor can come out of that. I have no problem with the star system. The star system has been in existence since the dawn of theater. Ask Richard Burbage. Um, but, um, uh, but it has shifted more into off-Broadway than it used to be. That used to be the that used to be the Broadway thing, I think. But over the last few years, I noticed that more and more, when you're you know casting a play, the first question from the artistic director will be, you know, well at least with this role or this role, the two, you know, let's say lead roles or one lead role, you know, who could we offer it to? because for them it's very important to have a name that, you know, will have some familiarity. So it's sort of, it's hedging their bets a little into... You're talking about subsidized off-Broadway shows. Yes, just off-Broadway. Not off for profit. Though. Right, exactly. And that always used to be, I thought, you know, the, uh, the process for casting on in commercial productions, but it's become more and more just the regular fare of theatre. And I just mean piggybacking on what you're talking about, you know, actors coming out of school, they have these debts, they, you know, if they're lucky, they pick up a TV or a film role that gives them some profile, they're going to immediately shoot to the top of the list in terms of being offered a role or yep. cast in a role. Then someone who has just come out of school and doesn't have a profile, it's really, really difficult Whether for Whether they're capable actor. of playing the role or not. Yes. And that's the challenge, I think. Yeah. So it's, I'm, again, I have no problem with star, star system as long as these actors are capable of actually playing the role. I think the difficulty is when you you start from the position of compromise and casting with a star, uh, and this person has has managed to. Uh, then I think you have a you have a challenge, and I I think we you have a, a a bigger challenge because we're educating our audiences now to only come to plays that have headliners in them, as opposed to coming to plays for what you rightly said earlier. The initial inspiration should be because of the writer. And it is it is a challenge in terms of casting, I think, uh, particularly as someone who works in a theater that's close to Los Angeles, yeah. uh, where a lot of people are there for the movie business, the television business, all of that. I think that great actors, great acting comes from people who have developed a certain kind of stage muscle, a certain kind of energy, and uh, it has to do with allowing the music, the text, to pass through their entire body, and that's why they're present on stage. Mm. That is not something you develop on a television series. Uh, and in fact, it may be something you lose if you've gone through a very good training program and then you go and do a TV series for five years and decide to come back and do a play. So very often in auditions, even with very well-known actors, somebody who somebody will be encouraging you to, to cast this person because it's going to help to sell the play or they're going to recognize the name, I get really nervous about casting those actors who just don't have that stage energy mm. to get through eight performances a week and really deliver the play. Well, and you don't have a little theater. So they have no. to be able to fill that house. Exactly. 
It's, it's interesting. In London, people m seem to move, and I'm speaking as an observer. My accent is, as I've said to you earlier, 30% pretension at this point. <laughs> um, it's, I'm an American-trained artist, and I am, I am, I am an American. Uh, I am working the American theater. Um, in London, when I go to visit, I'm always impressed by the effortless way these actors seem to be able to move between um, uh, stage and screen. But that's because it all exists in one place, whereas we have our film industry on one coast and our Emerald City of theater, at least, is, is on the other coast. And, and Chicago and Seattle, of course, the other um, centers of theater in the country um, don't seem to have a lot of film business, so they are primarily stage. I, we need to find maybe some way to merge the two. Because so it that is. We can I mean, allow it, it is a wonderful thing. If you, I mean, I love the idea of actors moving back and forwards between the mediums because I think it actually opens up a wider audience, mm -hmm. an audience that might just uh, watch film and TV actually will get drawn into the theater, and then that could open up other possibilities of seeing other theater. So I think you know, it's it's something to be encouraged. I mm -hmm. don't think it should separate, and I think that no. if someone doesn't have the experience, it's great to, you know give people the opportunity with the hope that they, you know, that they develop those muscles and they get a taste for it and they want to, you know, And continue. it's thrilling to see like Judy Dench on stage and Ian McKellen and actually Edie Falco, you know, that's a, w that's a wonderful thing to be able to sit in the audience and do. So I, I, it's not, I'm not knocking the idea. Yeah. I just think it's, a, it's an interesting challenge. Yeah. Yeah, no, I don't knock it either. And <laughs> I, I, I think it's a, a wonderful thing to have the opportunity to do, you know, and I, I did a play with Lawrence Fishburne, and you know, of course, the play sold very well. But he's also a great stage actor, yeah. you know. So that was it was it was really fortuitous. It's uh, it's tricky though that people don't realize they have to maintain their instrument. Mm. I really admire those people. Felicia Rashad is a great example. The whole time Felicia was doing all of those television series, on hiatus, she would always go somewhere and do a play. Mm. And a really challenging role, go somewhere and do Medea, go somewhere and do a Pearl Clegg play. You know, she understood that it was necessary for her to maintain her stage muscle. A lot of people just let it go. I've noticed, um, and I guess everyone has, the increased use of video projections in terms of uh, set design. And I'm wondering, has that had any effect on your work as you're conceptualizing work, as you're working with your designers? I eschew it, but that's partly because I like saying the word eschew it. <laughs> <laughs> I've you never. Said it well. Thank you. <laughs> We're impressed. Julia, don't you? <laughs> um, <laughs> I've never seen an actor win a fight with a projected image. Mm -hmm. Just never seen it. You go, you know, we see this in lectures all the time. You know, not a theatrical presentation. There's the person giving the speech, and behind her is a 40-foot wide video screen, and she could be no further away than we are from each other, and you find yourself looking at the video screen. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. And th there's no resolution to it. You can't, you, all you can is recognizable as the person who's giving the speech, but you can't see the twinkle in her eye. You can't see the fear, the nervousness. You can't see the exuberance about whatever it is she's talking about. It all gets washed out because the resolution just isn't high enough. So, um, but for some people, obviously, it's, and then, then you I, see something like Kentridge, you know, where the video, this great artist, who does theater William pieces Kentridge, with William yeah. Kentridge. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing entirely. But what you all may like feel Brief differently Encounter? about this. What about something like Brief Encounter, though? I mean, that was Didn't a delightful 
Right. Just a delightful interaction between yeah. film and, and stage. I'm yeah. for it. <laughs> I just didn't see it. I, I personally love the combination, but I, I think that is a thing to be careful of. But I actually think that it's, it's the opposite. It's sort of the judicial. Judicious, you see, see, I'm trying to use a shoe. I'm just going to use a shoe. Judicious use is actually uh, the way to go because I do think you've got an audience, uh, particularly as a younger audience comes in, who, you know, that is part of their visual language and, and to use that combination is, is an exciting thing. I do also believe that a living, breathing human being in front of you inevitably is always of more interest than the image. So it's just a matter of not fighting them with the image. It's that combination of how you present the video image, let it rest, and then put the focus back on the actor. But I think if you can you know, play with, it's, I just see video as a window into something, and then it becomes interesting. But that's probably because I come out of, my background is more art school and TV and downtown performance art and that whole multimedia, I would say better or worse. To the young directors out there who are watching this, uh, now that I'm in my dotage, <laughs> I guess I could say this, <laughs> that it's, uh, it's, it's a tool and can be a wonderful tool, but it shouldn't be the tool. I remember mm -hmm. being on a, a panel for a directing fellowship and they had to submit uh, samples of their work, which is always tricky anyway, because this, the samples are always hard to really gauge. But I would say eight out of ten of them were using some kind of video images or component in the work. And it was frequently all you could see, all you could look at. Mm -hmm. And it's a tool, but it's not the tool. The tool is the power of the actor's performance and the storytelling. Yeah. And if you depend on that, <laughs> to be the thing that's going to get the production across, it's not going to happen. I saw a young director up at Columbia use video brilliantly just last weekend, so <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but it was very abstract, and um, it was just great. But you it's just thrilling. choose not to use it. I mean, that doesn't mean it's bad. Probably because I'm bad at it or something. <laughs> I don't know. No, I just, I, I, I've never, uh, yeah. It's not a picture I, you want to make. Yeah. yeah. And maybe not the kind of plays that you're attracted to. As you say, you always start with the script, and if the script doesn't call for it, it's, I, I think you're right. It's a tool. Yeah. I'm, look tools. I'm looking at a play now that's set in the 19-whatever, 70s, and I realize that's ancient history for many people. I remember it vividly. <laughs> but, boy, 20 seconds of video of the 1970s would be really useful mm -hmm. to set the scene. Sure. And a lot cheaper than $100,000 worth of scenery. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then you wouldn't have to live with it. It was just bang. I mean, right. think about the subway system in 1970. Yeah, right. Right? You couldn't see the cars through the graffiti. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a great image. And, yeah. you know, you could project that on a scrim and lift the scrim out and bang, and there you are. You can only yeah. be in one the place, New York City in the 1970s. I agree, it's a tool. Just be smart about it. Are there opportunities today for the equivalent number or equivalent opportunities for young directors to come in to break in today? I don't think it matters, sorry, whether there's an equivalent number. A director is somebody who directs. It's that simple. Whether it's 1952 or 1972 or 2011, a director is a person who, against whatever the odds are, We'll find X number of actors, find a room, find an audience, and do it. Because the fact is nobody 
with rare exceptions, ever asks you to direct. Unless you're already in the room and, That's you know, true. hey, you're a good actor, I got a hunch about you, you should go direct. But no one's going to call you up and offer you a directing job, right? Right. right. Ain't going to happen. Right. A director's a person who directs. Yeah, it's part of the nature of, you know, the, the position, absolutely. And also any young directors I know, because, you know, we all work with young ADs. Uh, and the ones I know, by the time we get to the end of the production, you have a really strong sense whether they're really going to get out there and direct because invariably the way they go about things is very self-sufficient. And half the time they already have created some small theater company or they've got a peer group that they get together gotcha. and they're, you know, uh, encouraging, you know, uh, particularly, as I say, their sort of peer group, which is really what you hope is that they're already building a network of young writers and actors and designers who they're going to make work with, and they really don't care whether they put it on, you know, in the parking lot down the street. They're just going to do it. So I, I agree. Our, our time is, is, is beginning to draw to an end, so I wanted to ask each of you, um, is there some, if not play, some kind of, of, uh, of, of show that you've wanted to do and haven't had the chance to do? Now, I know you've experimented a bit, but is there something that you haven't had the chance to do that you wanted to do? No. <laughs> I've, been, I've been so uh -huh. fortunate to have been in situations where I've, I've gotten to touch almost every base that I've wanted to touch. Next week, my answer could be different, but <laughs> right now, I'm, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm really satisfied. I'm really mm -hmm. happy about covering the territory. I have to say no also, <laughs> <laughs> uh, mainly because I think it's also, you make your choices. And mm -hmm. I made a choice a little while ago, although I've always worked on new stuff, to actually do projects I felt would take a longer development time. So rather than going from production to production, I'm going to take as long as it takes to mm -hmm. get somewhere. And, you know, that's, and people seem to be giving the opportunity. So, hey, that's nice. That's nice. Also. I'm, I think we must be the luckiest people <laughs> working in the industry. I've no complaints. I feel like I'm doing what I want to do. I'm very grateful. Okay. Come on, Greg, you've got to counter all this. Yeah. No, no, I do <laughs> want to direct a musical before I die. You haven't directed a musical? I have never. I've produced musicals. I have never directed one. Mm -hmm. I want, I mean, this goes all the way back to the conducting thing I said. Oh, that's right. Yeah. You want I to come direct a musical at Writers Theatre? Done. Let's do it. Done. There you go. See what a productive show theater, this is. I would immediately counter, but thank you. <laughs> yeah, right. I would like that very much. We have now uh, moved into the production phase here, at producing uh, phase here at uh, at the working in the theater because we've made a connection. We'll, <laughs> yeah. we'll come see. We'll come see your made show. We will be coming to see all of your shows. Thank you so much for spending this time with us here, and thank you for joining us. These programs are brought to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York in partnership with our friends at CUNY TV. On behalf of the American Theater Wing, I'm Jan Simpson, and thanks for joining us for another edition of Working in the Theater. I'm Ted Chapin, Chairman of the American Theater Wing. The Wing has played a vital role in New York's theatrical life for more than 60 years. Best known for creating the Tony Awards, we stand for excellence, but we also support education in the theater, and our work reaches beyond Broadway in New York. The Working in the Theater television programs, which are supported by the Annenberg Foundation and the Dorothy Strelson Foundation, are unequaled forums for discussions with today's most creative artists. 
Downstage Center's in-depth radio interviews were created in conjunction with XM Satellite Radio and can be heard on our website. For people who are starting their careers, we have a two-week boot camp for aspiring actors from colleges across the country called Springboard NYC. And our theater intern group provides a forum for young people who are starting their careers to build a professional network. All of the American Theatre Wing's educational and media programs are available for free on demand from our website, americantheaterwing.org. Thanks for your interest in the Wing, and thanks for watching.